0: The Libyan man accused of making the bomb that destroyed Pan Am Flight 103, killing 270 people in Scotland in 1988, is now in U.S. custody. It's Monday, December 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoy. Coming up, Fox News boss Rupert Murdoch will sit for a deposition today in a billion-dollar defamation lawsuit over lies about the 2020 election. Plus, amid threats against drag shows, some lawmakers in Texas want to limit who could attend those performances. LGBTQ groups say that makes no sense.
1: It has always been entertainment and art and pageantry
2: and fun. And now it's being politicized and it's being attacked. And this hour,
0: why there is an increased risk of heart attacks this time of year. In sports, the Bruins win, clearing skies today in the 30s. At 7:01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The U.S. has taken custody of a former Libyan intelligence officer suspected of building the bomb that destroyed a Pan Am jet over Lockerbie, Scotland in 1988. 270 people were killed. The Justice Department plans to put him on trial. Stephanie Bernstein is the vice president of the group victims of Pan Am Flight 103. She says she is grateful the suspect has been arrested.
2: At first, I thought I was dreaming. Uh, when I uh, was told uh, what had happened, but, um, but it's happened, and I'm incredibly grateful that this man will um, be uh, tried in the United States.
3: U.S. officials say Libyan authorities arrested the suspect in 2020, and at the time, he admitted to building the bomb. Ukraine's prime minister is calling on his country to save power. That's because Russian missile strikes have damaged Ukrainian power plants in recent weeks. NPS Joanna Kakissis reports from Kharkiv.
4: In a Facebook
5: post on Sunday, Prime Minister Denis Shmyhal said critical infrastructure such as hospitals as well as the military should have priority access to limited energy supplies. Ukraine's state energy operator says European institutions are set to send more than $400 million in grants and loans to help Ukraine repair the power grid. Utility workers race to fix energy and heating infrastructure only to have it hit again by more Russian missiles. Meanwhile, Ukrainian forces continue to try to liberate occupied areas. On Sunday, Ukraine hit Russian military barracks in the occupied southeastern city of Melitopol.
3: Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kharkiv. A major winter storm is pummeling the central U.S. The National Weather Service has issued blizzard warnings for states from Colorado north to Montana. Winter storm warnings stretch from California's mountains to central South Dakota. Milwaukee police are investigating the deadly shooting of a U.S. Postal Service letter carrier while he delivered mail. From member station WUWM, Chuck Kornbach reports that during a vigil yesterday, mourners raised concerns about the safety of letter carriers.
6: Milwaukee police say 18-year Postal Service employee Andre Cross was fatally shot late Friday afternoon while on his neighborhood mail route. Tracy Merrill is a former supervisor of Cross. She told a vigil held for Cross that the deceased man was also her friend. Merrill says when carriers are on the street, they have little protection.
7: The mail bag can't protect them. It has to be God in them, you know be prayerful before they leave and prayerful every minute of their day.
6: The U.S. Postal Inspection Service says the safety and security of postal employees is a top priority. The service has offered a reward of up to $50,000 in the case. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Kornbach in Milwaukee.
3: You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBR in Boston,
0: I'm Rupa Chenoy. After years of planning and delays, the Green Green Line extension to Medford is now open. Service began before 5 this morning. Pam Bybel was among those waiting for the first train.
8: We came from the other side of Medford. We've been waiting for this station to open for many, many years, and we're just so excited.
0: There are five new stations in Medford and Somerville. WBUR's Walter Rothman reports on this $2.3 billion project. The Green Line extension
6: is the first new subway branch on the T since the state demolished the elevated Orange Line nearly four decades ago. The first station opened in Union Square in March, but the five remaining stations weren't ready until today. The MBTA launched the project in the early 90s to help settle a lawsuit over pollution from the Big Dig. Justin Hollander is a professor at Tufts University.
9: This is something that the state of Massachusetts basically didn't want to do, never wanted to do, and has been forced again and again to do. And so that's what it takes (laughs) to build new transit in our region. It's
0: not easy.
6: The T expects the new line to attract more than 50,000 trips per day. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman.
0: Congressman Seth Moulton is back in the U.S. following a secret trip to Ukraine. The Boston Globe reports Moulton met with American and Ukrainian officials in Kiev on Saturday. The trip was focused on how the U.S. can better support Ukraine amid Russia's invasion of the country. The war is entering its 10th month. University of New Hampshire researchers say many rural areas in the country gained population during the pandemic. At the same time, cities saw their population growth slow significantly. As Sarah Gibson reports, it's a reversal of trends seen in the last decade.
10: Before the pandemic, much of rural America was losing population, driven by a number of factors, including an exodus of young people, an aging population, and a decrease in birth rates. This study of new census data finds that despite a major increase in deaths due to COVID-19, a number of non-metropolitan counties in the U.S. saw their population increase. The study notes that in 2020 and 2021, migration and birth rates in cities were significantly lower than in the previous decade. This shift in where population growth is occurring is unusual in the U.S., but it's unclear how long the trend will continue. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sarah Gibson.
0: The Maine Maritime Academy community is mourning the deaths of four students in a car crash over the weekend. Two of the students were from Massachusetts. They've been identified as 22-year-old Luke Simpson of Rockport and 20-year-old Riley Ignacio Camarón of Aquina. Three other students survived after the SUV they were in hit a tree Saturday and caught on fire. The cause of the crash is being investigated. It's 7.07.
2: We are funded by you our listeners and by Downtown Crossing Boston with shopping, theater, fine dining, a holiday marketplace and more. The magic of the season is here. It's time to celebrate. downtownboston.org and Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. laurenholleran.com. The Bruins beat
0: the Golden Knights 3 to 1 last night in Las Vegas. The Bees return home tomorrow to play the Islanders. Tonight, the Patriots take on the Cardinals in Arizona, while the Celtics visit the Los Angeles Clippers. Cloudy this morning with clearing by the afternoon. The high will be in the low to mid-30s. Clear overnight with temperatures in the 20s. Sunny tomorrow, mid-30s. It's 25 degrees in Boston at 708.
11: WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz in Washington.
13: And Martinez in Los Angeles, California. On December 21st, 1988, a bomb brought down Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland. Now nearly 34
12: years later, the Libyan man suspected of making that bomb is in U.S. custody. It's hard to understate how shocking the Lockerbie bombing was at the time. 270 people from 21 countries were killed, 190 of them Americans. NPR justice correspondent
13: Ryan Lucas joins us now. Ryan, tell us some more about the suspect and who he is.
14: the suspect is Abu Aguila Mohabbin Masoud Kir al-Marimi. He'd been held in a detention facility in Libya, and officials say he was handed over to an FBI team on Sunday, and they then flew him back to the U.S. to face charges. Now, uh, he faces two charges. Uh, He was charged two years ago by the Justice Department. There are two counts that he faces, though. uh, Destruction of an aircraft resulting in death uh, and destruction of a vehicle by means of an explosive resulting in death.
13: And what is his role alleged to be?
14: Well, according to American prosecutors, Massoud was an officer in the Libyan intelligence service and was a bomb-making expert. And prosecutors say that he played a critical role in this Lockerbie affair. They say he prepared the bomb that was used. Uh, In this instance, investigators say the bomb was hidden in a cassette player that was placed in a suitcase. Now, prosecutors say that Massoud delivered the suitcase with the bomb to two Libyan operatives. Massoud allegedly set the timer on their orders uh, for the following day. And then those operatives took the suitcase, and they're the ones who managed to get it on the plane.
13: And tell us about the two other men that have faced charges.
14: Well, these two men, one is Abdul Basset uh, Ali al Magrehi, the other is Alamine Khalifa Fahima. Uh, they were identified early in the in in the investigation and they were charged. Uh, they eventually faced trial in a special Scottish court that was set up in the Netherlands. Uh, Magrehi was convicted, Fahima was acquitted. But American and Scottish investigators didn't stop there. They kept working this case. Uh, and they caught a break with the uprising that toppled Libyan leader Muammar Mu- Mu- Gaddafi in 2011 because Massoud was detained and questioned by the new Libyan authorities after Gaddafi's fall. And he allegedly confessed to them his role in the Lockerbie bombing. The Libyans provided a transcript of Massoud's confession in that interview to the FBI. Uh, and that was critical to Massoud eventually being charged two years ago here in the U.S. And
13: now he's in custody and going to face uh, justice here in the U.S. And I can imagine that this is a huge step for the families of the victims
14: absolutely absolutely this is the the culmination of a decades-long investigation and hunt for everyone responsible for this bombing Uh, one of the victims of the attack was richard minetti he was a student at syracuse university Uh, he and 34 other syracuse students who were studying abroad were returning home for the holidays on pan am flight 103. minetti's sister kara weeps spoke to weekend all things considered about massoud's arrest here's a bit of what she had to say
2: this means so much to the family, so much to my family, so much to me, to know that justice is going to be served in our country under our laws.
14: And she also said that this is another step toward ascertaining the truth about the bombing uh, and ultimately, of course, holding everyone responsible.
13: So Ryan, what are the next steps here?
14: Well, Massoud will now face the, the U.S. criminal justice system. Uh, there are legal questions, of course, surrounding the confession that he made in Libyan custody. We'll see how that all plays out in the weeks and months to come. Uh, but for now, I'm told that Massoud could make his initial appearance in federal court here in Washington, D.C., as soon as today. All right, that's NPR's Ryan Lucas. Ryan, thanks. Thank you.
12: Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema has announced she's leaving the party to become an independent. She's always been an independent thinker in a state that proudly encouraged so-called maverick politicians. Let's talk more about this with Ron Hansen, national political reporter with the Arizona Republic. Good morning, Ron. Good morning. So you've covered Senator Sinema for a long time. She's always been resistant to labels and expectations. How have her
15: politics evolved over the years? You know, she began in state government uh, in a 2002 run that didn't succeed with voters, and she ran as a Green Party candidate, and she was... Uh, very vocal during the invasion of Iraq and opposed that maneuver at the time. She ran as a Democrat in 2004 for the State House, won and began the first of, of three terms or four terms there, uh, where she kind of moved from someone who was uh, active in trying to you know pull together a liberal agenda and then kind of drifted more to the pragmatic lane where she felt like she could actually get some legislation passed at the time, which is rare for Democrats in Arizona at the time.
12: And some are saying that Arizona Democrats themselves pushed her out of the party. You know, we know that protesters have followed her, filmed her, taunted her for years. Do you think there's any validity to that having led to her departure?
15: You know, I think it's a case of both sides really were uncomfortable with each other. Uh, Kirsten Cinema has worked a room full of Republicans or business leaders who probably lean to the right uh, many times. I've seen her uh, chat with people like Andy Biggs or Matt Salmon, both uh, very conservative congressmen, and she's comfortable in that kind of environment. With Democrats, it was harder to find her, especially in recent years in anything that would be... Uh, Um, an unscripted kind of uh, event that was open to activists, the grassroots types. She really didn't participate in those kind of state meetings where things could go uh, further to the left. It was just clear that both sides really didn't want to hear uh, what the other wanted on some things that were pressure points for them.
12: Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders says that he suspects cinema left the Democrats for political aspirations.
15: What do you think he means by that? I suspect he means that this is purely a poll-driven exercise by someone who knew she could not win a Democratic primary. There's a a fair amount of polling that has come out in recent days since her announcement that suggests that her, her popularity had sunk so low that there was very low chance that she could win a Democratic primary. This kind of extends it. Uh, she would be on the ballot in November as an independent if she chooses to run and sort of continues her viability at least a bit longer uh, if if things don't break in a dramatic way.
12: In an op-ed in the Arizona Republic, which is your paper, on Friday, Senator Sinema wrote, Americans are told that we must subscribe wholesale to policy views the parties hold views that have been pulled further and further towards the extremes. Is that a popular view in Arizona?
15: It seems like that's a good message that she is saying that she rejects extremism in both parties. It's the kind of thing that is uh, consistent with the independent label that she now officially wears. And you know, it's consistent with her legislative record, especially in the past year where she has worked with both parties to try and pull together some pretty significant legislation. What that means is a practical matter on the ground is a little harder to figure. Um, she doesn't really work closely with Democratic activists, as I said earlier and her allies in the Senate on the Democratic side have been a little harder to find. She does have a a decent relationship with Senator Mark Kelly. She worked to get him reelected here in Arizona in November, but it's been more in a behind the scenes capacity.
12: And quickly, Senator Sinema has said she will continue to caucus with the Democrats and vote with them on both issues. How do you expect her departure will impact
15: the Democrats agenda in the Senate? You know, in the Senate, I think that it can, keeps them on a path that they can um, move forward with, legislate, with uh, judicial nominees and, and that sort of thing. But with the Republicans taking the House, it's going to be hard for the Democrats to move much farther legislatively. The filibuster is the thing that really created a lot of uh, angst and anger for Democratic activists. In some ways, that becomes moot with a Republican House.
12: That's Ron Hansen of the Arizona Republic. Thank you so much for taking your time. Thank you. A top European
13: Union lawmaker is in jail. She's one of four people charged by Belgian prosecutors with taking bribes from a Gulf state. The prosecutor did not name the state, but Belgian media have identified it as World Cup host Qatar. Terry Scholz reports from Brussels.
1: Last month, European Parliament Vice President Eva Kiley gave a glowing speech about Qatar on the floor of the EU legislature.
16: They are a new generation of intelligent, high educated, people and they are peace negotiators. They are good neighbors and partners.
1: She also criticized fellow EU lawmakers who didn't share that view.
16: Still some here are calling to discriminate them. They bully them and they accuse everyone that talks to them or engages of corruption.
1: Saturday, Kylie was arrested on charges of corruption after Belgian police found 600,000 euros stashed in her house. Now she and her partner, a parliamentary adviser, are among those jailed, also accused of money laundering and participation in a criminal organization. She's been kicked out of her political party in Greece and has been suspended from her vice presidential duties. All of this came just a few days before the European Parliament was scheduled to vote on starting negotiations to grant visa-free travel to citizens of Qatar and three other countries. But many lawmakers now call for the matter to be re-examined. Among them is Eric Marquardt, a key player in drafting the proposed legislation.
4: You cannot act like you have a great partnership with a country that is attacking your democracy with corruption.
1: Marquardt says Kylie approached him personally on the matter and he was struck by her lack of subtlety.
4: It was very obvious that she is very much in favor of giving a visa waiver to Qatar very fast with not so many conditions, but she was not so interested in the other countries.
1: Alberto Alemano is an EU lawyer who's long campaigned for lobbying transparency and reform. He suggests improvements as simple as making parliamentarians declare all their meetings. He says while rules exist, enforcement and consequences are too weak and that no one should be shocked this happened.
16: Hopefully this scandal uh, will lead to a great reckoning that will create the political appetite that has always been lacking within the European institution to further enhance and upgrade the current ethical system.
1: Qatar, which is currently hosting the World Cup, has released a statement saying it categorically rejects any attempts to associate it with accusations of misconduct. It says any such association is, quote, baseless and gravely misinformed. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels.
13: This is NPR News.
17: On the next Fresh Air, filmmaker Ryan Johnson talks about his new movie, Glass Onion, the sequel to his popular murder mystery comedy, Knives Out. Glass Onion takes place on the private island of a tech billionaire who has invited his friends to play a murder mystery game. Of course, things don't go as planned. Join us.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Searchlight Pictures presenting Empire of Light, a new film directed by Sam Mendes, starring Olivia Colman, Michael Ward, and Colin Firth, about human connection and the magic of cinema, now playing in select theaters. And from Bed Bath & Beyond, with storage products too, featuring a curated selection of brands including Shark, Ninja, and Casper. More at bed, bath, and beyond dot com. And from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment, and immersive experiences on board and on shore, viking dot com. This is NPR.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Rob Schmitz. The Golden Globes will be back on television next month after an embattled tenure for the organization that hosts the annual ceremony honoring film and TV. And this morning, nominations will be announced as NPR's Mandelita El Barco reports.
19: Comedian George Lopez and his daughter Mayan, who star on the sitcom Lopez vs. Lopez, will announce the nominees from film, television, and streaming categories. And next month, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association plans to hand out its trophies with a lavish Hollywood party, emceed by comedian Gerard Carmichael, who once hosted SNL.
20: I have to be the least famous host. In SNL, like
19: the least. The ceremony will be shown on NBC, which scrapped its broadcast last year after controversy over the host organization's questionable practices. The HFPA was criticized for conflicts of interest, for having very few black members, and for alleged inappropriate behavior by some members who were supposed to be journalists for international media. Leaders of the HFPA say they overhauled the organization, including stricter standards of who is a member. Here's President Helen Hone during last year's nominations announcement. For eight months, we have worked tirelessly as an organization to be better. We changed our rules, bylaws, added a new
18: code of conduct, and restructured our governance.
19: Even so, many studios, networks, stars, and publicists boycotted last year's ceremony. There were no celebrity presenters, no red carpet, no media, and no broadcast. This time, actor Brendan Fraser, who starred in the film Whale, says he will not be attending. He alleges he was sexually assaulted by the HFPA's former eight-term president, Philip Burke, in 2003, an allegation Burke has disputed. It will be interesting to see who does or doesn't show up for what's traditionally been Hollywood's loosest, booziest award celebration. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News, Los Angeles.
13: There's a lot of focus on viruses this season and the threat of a triple-demic. But heart doctors say one health risk that doesn't get much attention is the holiday heart attack spike. NPR's Alison Aubrey reports nearly 800,000 Americans have a heart attack each year, and amid the rush of the holidays, it's easy to miss the warning signs.
21: Donald Lloyd-Jones is a cardiologist at Northwestern University in Chicago and the former president of the American Heart Association. He told me for years, he and his colleagues have noted a trend.
20: We do see a spike in heart attacks and strokes as we head into the holiday season. And of course, heart attack and stroke are still the leading causes of death worldwide, and that includes the U.S.
21: The data pointing to a winter spike goes back a few decades. The weather could be part of the explanation since blood vessels can constrict or narrow in cold temperatures.
20: And so if you already have compromised blood flow to your heart, that sort of spasm or or narrowing down of the arteries in response to cold air can make things worse.
21: But it's not just the cold. This trend has also been documented in Southern California, where scientists examined death certificates and found about 33 percent more deaths in Los Angeles County in December and January compared to the summer months.
20: There is a broad and shallow dip through the summer months, and then there is a very large spike in the last week of the year between Christmas and New Year's.
21: He says people tend to get off their routines during the holidays. We tend to eat more, drink more, sleep less, perhaps be more stressed, and some people forget to take their medications.
20: If you're already at risk for heart disease or stroke, you know, the changes that happen in our blood pressure with stressors, especially if you add in, you know, a mix of alcohol and, and not sleeping, all those things really push our body pretty hard.
21: And in the midst of celebrating holidays, people may miss the warning signs of a heart attack.
20: Heavy, heavy pressure in the chest uh, that's new or unexp- unexpected. Um, Unexplained shortness of breath, especially sudden onset.
21: But not everybody gets these symptoms. Dr. Tina Shaw is a cardiologist at Kaiser Permanente. She's based in Seattle. Dizziness, lightheadedness, feeling like faint. Um, And it's also important to remember that
16: sometimes we don't have these exact textbook sort of symptoms, especially in women. They can have
21: more subtle symptoms. She says she's seen instances when people ignore that gut feeling that something is off. We're wrong. People feel like I'm out
16: with family. We're doing all this fun stuff. I don't want to be, you know, the damper in the party. I don't want to disappoint my family. I do not feel well, but I'll just hold off on, you know, seeking medical attention till I'm back home or till the holidays or the, the festivities are over.
21: Despite the crowds, inconvenience or expense of an ER visit, Dr. Shaw says it's better to be safe than sorry. I always recommend to err on the side of caution, um, to seek attention right away. Doctors can do an EKG or blood work. They can tell whether you're having a heart attack. Allison Aubrey, NPR News.
18: Support for NPR health coverage comes from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships 25,000 therapists are available through betterhelp using a computer or smartphone betterhelp.com/public and from procter and gamble maker of align probiotic a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research more at AlignProbiotics.com.
13: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Golden Globes announces nominations this morning. The 80th annual awards will return to live broadcast after a scandal and boycott forced them off the air. It's 720.
14: Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars.
2: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Klee, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, icaboston.org. And Huntington Theatre. This winter, give the gift of art, culture, and community by giving the gift of the Huntington. From gift certificates to custom seat plaques to flexible packages and memberships, there's something for everyone. For gift ideas, visit
22: huntingtontheatre.org gifts. I'm Deepa Fernandez. For grandparents raising their grandchildren, it takes creativity and love to persevere to feed their families. That big four-letter word, love, is what keeps pushing me.
23: Yeah, the same thing, it's, it's love, it's that commitment.
22: Two grandparents share their challenges with food insecurity, next time on Here and Now, today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Cloudy skies gradually clear today while temperatures rise only to a high near 34. Tonight it stays mostly clear and falls to a low around 24. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 37. It's 25 degrees in Boston at 721.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Searchlight Pictures presenting... Empire of Light, a new film directed by Sam Mendes, starring Olivia Colman, Michael Ward, and Colin Firth, about human connection and the magic of cinema, now playing in select theaters. And from Bed Bath & Beyond, with storage products too, featuring a curated selection of brands including Shark, Ninja, and Casper. More at bedbathandbeyond.com. And from Viking dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore, viking.com. This is NPR.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News, I'm Emi Martinez. And I'm Rob Schmitz. The Golden Globes will be back on television next month after an embattled tenure for the organization that hosts the annual ceremony honoring film and TV And this morning, nominations will be announced as NPR's Mandelita El Barco reports.
19: Comedian George Lopez and his daughter Mayan, who star on the sitcom Lopez vs. Lopez, will announce the nominees from film, television, and streaming categories. And next month, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association plans to hand out its trophies with a lavish Hollywood party, emceed by comedian Gerard Carmichael, who once hosted SNL.
20: I have to be the least famous host. (laughs) In SNL, like the
19: least. The ceremony will be shown on NBC, which scrapped its broadcast last year after controversy over the host organization's questionable practices. The HFPA was criticized for conflicts of interest, for having very few black members, and for alleged inappropriate behavior by some members who are supposed to be journalists for international media. Leaders of the HFPA say they overhauled the organization, including stricter standards of who is a member. Here's President Helen Hone during last year's nominations announcement.
18: For eight months, we have worked tirelessly as an organization to be better. We changed our rules, bylaws, added a new code of conduct, and restructured our governance.
19: Even so, many studios, networks, stars, and publicists boycotted last year's ceremony. There were no celebrity presenters, no red carpet, no media, and no broadcast. This time, actor Brendan Fraser, who starred in the film Whale, says he will not be attending. He alleges he was sexually assaulted by the HFPA's former eight-term president, Philip Burke, in 2003, an allegation Burke has disputed. It will be interesting to see who does or doesn't show up for what's traditionally been Hollywood's loosest, booziest award celebration. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News, Los Angeles.
13: There's a lot of focus on viruses this season and the threat of a triple-demic. But heart doctors say one health risk that doesn't get much attention is the holiday heart attack spike. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports nearly 800,000 Americans have a heart attack each year, and amid the rush of the holidays, it's easy to miss the warning signs.
21: Donald Lloyd-Jones is a cardiologist at Northwestern University in Chicago and the former president of the American Heart Association. He told me for years, he and his colleagues have noted a trend.
20: We do see a spike in heart attacks and strokes as we head into the holiday season and of course heart attack and stroke are still the leading causes of death worldwide and that includes the u.s
21: the data pointing to a winter spike goes back a few decades the weather could be part of the explanation since blood vessels can constrict or narrow in cold temperatures
20: and so if you already have compromised blood flow to your mm-hmm. heart that sort of spasm or or narrowing down of the arteries in response to cold air can make things worse.
21: But it's not just the cold. This trend has also been documented in Southern California, where scientists examined death certificates and found about 33% more deaths in Los Angeles County in December and January compared to the summer months.
20: There is a broad and shallow dip through the summer months. And then there is a very large spike in the last week of the year between Christmas and New Year's.
21: He says people tend to get off their routines during the holidays. We tend to eat more, drink more, sleep less, perhaps be more stressed, and some people forget to take their medications.
20: If you're already at risk for heart disease or stroke, you know, the changes that happen in our blood pressure with stressors, especially if you add in, you know, a mix of alcohol and and not sleeping, all those things really push our body pretty hard.
21: And in the midst of celebrating holidays, people may miss the warning signs of a heart attack.
20: Heavy, heavy pressure in the chest uh, that's new or unexpected, Um, unexplained shortness of breath, especially sudden onset.
21: But not everybody gets these symptoms. Dr. Tina Shaw is a cardiologist at Kaiser Permanente. She's based in Seattle. Dizziness, lightheadedness, feeling like
16: faint. Um, And it's also important to remember that sometimes we don't have these
21: exact textbook sort of symptoms, especially in women. They can have more subtle symptoms. She says she's seen instances when people ignore that gut feeling that something is off or wrong. People feel like... I'm out with family. We're doing
16: all this fun stuff. I don't want to be, you know, the damper in the party. I don't want to disappoint my family. I do not feel well, but I'll just hold off on, you know, seeking medical attention till I'm back home or till the holidays or the
21: the festivities are over. Despite the crowds, inconvenience or expense of an ER visit, Dr. Shaw says it's better to be safe than sorry. I always recommend to err on the side of caution, um, to seek attention right away. Doctors can do an EKG or blood work. They can tell whether you're having a heart attack. Alison Aubrey, NPR News.
18: Support for NPR health coverage comes from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com.
13: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WPOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Texas legislators have proposed a bill that would regulate drag shows and limit who can attend them. It's 729.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth
6: live from npr news in washington i'm dave mattingly the libyan man suspected of making the bomb that brought down pan am flight 103 over Lockerbie, scotland nearly 34 years ago is now in u.s custody here's npr's frank Langfitt.
24: the man is named abu agila Mohammed masoud kir al marimi he's a longtime member of libyan intelligence services and Prosecutors say a breakthrough in the case came when Libyan authorities interviewed him and they gave the Americans the transcript. And according to the transcript, Massoud admitted to building the bomb. He confirmed that it was ordered by Libyan intelligence at the time and that the late leader Muammar Gaddafi thanked him and other people who were involved in the team that downed the airliner for doing this.
6: The bombing of the airliner killed 270 people, mostly Americans. The new mayor of Los Angeles says reducing the city's homeless population is her top priority. Democrat Karen Bass was sworn into office yesterday and declared a state of emergency, with the city's homeless population estimated at more than 40,000. Benjamin Oreskes is with the Los Angeles Times.
9: It gives her a lot more power, flexibility, uh, and freedom to deploy resources, staff, and money in various different directions to address this crisis that voters you know, indicated in any number of ways was the most important in the city.
6: This is NPR News from Washington.
0: From WBWR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. That's the sound of the first Green Line train leaving the new Medford top station before five this morning. The extension through Somerville and Medford is now officially open. Former state transportation secretary Fred Salvucci spent years advocating for the project.
16: Federal aid than never. You know it's great that it's that it's happening, and a lot of credit is due to the people. Uh, who just wouldn't give up on holding the state to the commitments that were made.
0: Stacey Rubin is with the Conservation Law Foundation. She says her group wants the Green Line to extend even further into Medford.
21: We should recognize that this Green Line extension project is going to benefit predominantly people who are dependent on public transit, which are riders of color, low-income residents, and we're thrilled that people now have more options.
0: Today's opening concludes the more than $2 billion project that had been under consideration for decades. State lawmakers are set to reintroduce a so-called right-to-die bill next month. It would let terminally ill people get drugs that would help them end their lives. Massachusetts residents narrowly rejected the idea in a ballot referendum in 2012. The option is legal in nine other states, including Vermont and Maine. The Boston Society for Architecture's annual gingerbread competition is underway. This year's theme is a little different than years past. That theme is climate-ready Boston. WBUR's Barbara Moran takes a look at the entries. The 16
8: gingerbread creations feature everything from homes on chocolate stilts to solar panels crafted from cookies and pretzels. Maya Erslov is the gallery manager at the Boston Society for Architecture.
25: I think climate change is often kind of a scary topic for many people, but I think that this theme and the way that the submitters kind of took it and flipped it on its head has has turned it into more of a hopeful and playful interpretations of that.
8: The exhibit is free and open to the public until December 20th. After that, the creations will be crushed and, of course, composted. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara
0: Moran. It's 7.33.
2: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, a neighborhood bookstore in Cambridge and Boston. Holiday catalogs and book recommendations for every reader. PorterSquareBooks.com. Three
0: different Bruins scored in last night's 3-1 win over the Golden Knights in Las Vegas. The Bees return home tomorrow to skate with the New York Islanders. In women's hockey, the Boston Pride beat the Buffalo Buttes yesterday 7-5. Tonight, the Patriots will visit the Arizona Cardinals. The Celtics are in L.A. to play the Clippers. And former Celtic Paul Silas has died. He was part of the 1974 and 1976 championship teams. He later became an NBA coach, coaching LeBron James in his rookie season. Paul Silas was 79. In your forecast, overcast skies slowly clear this morning. It'll be cold, rising only to the low 30s today. Tonight, mid to upper 20s and still clear. Sunny tomorrow in the upper 30s. It's 25 degrees in Boston at 734.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of VIX Dayquil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vix.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez
13: in Los Angeles, California. A $1.6 billion lawsuit against Fox News has now roped in the head honcho.
12: Rupert Murdoch, the 91-year-old owner of parent company Fox Corp, will take an oath and answer questions in private this week about Fox's response to the 2020 presidential election. Dominion Voting Systems accuses the network of defamation by spreading falsehoods that it somehow tried to deny then-president Donald Trump of re-election. NPR's David Fulkenflick is covering the lawsuit. What do uh, Dominion's
26: attorneys want to find out from Rupert Murdoch? So look, the Fox defense is that they were covering newsworthy allegations by the then sitting President of the United States and his attorneys. What Dominion is arguing is that there was a conspiracy, essentially, an orchestrated effort from the bottom of Fox News to the top, which includes Rupert Murdoch over all of it, to win back Trump voters and Fox viewers from some of its coverage. Rupert Murdoch had told Donald Trump after Fox News called Arizona for Joe Biden that he wouldn't reverse it. And so did others throughout the network. That means that. Dominion is going to argue it can show that Rupert Murdoch and others there knowingly allowed Fox News hosts and guests to lie, to defame Dominion, to claim somehow that Dominion voting systems was involved in funneling Trump votes over to Biden, which is not true and which they knew not to be true. And the fact that Murdoch refused to reverse it is evidence of that. The fact that reporters at Fox News and at The Wall Street Journal. We're debunking those lies in real time is evidence of that. And they're going to claim that the kind of material that has so far come to light, that's going to be evidence as well. So that's part of Dominion's effort to prove its defamation by saying this was all knowingly allowed, even though they knew it wasn't true. So how damaging could this lawsuit be for Fox News and the rest of the Murdoch media empire? Well, the lawsuit's for $1.6 billion. That's a lot of money. Uh, The Murdochs can afford it. It's a publicly traded company, but it, it would still hurt. Even if it's in the hundreds of millions, it would still hurt. I think that what also could be more damaging in some ways is reputationally. You know, if this actually goes to trial in April, as currently scheduled, you could see a lot of these depositions, the details coming to light, a lot of the evidence coming to light, indicating To be honest, how cynical many of the figures on Fox were in inviting on guests to make these claims, knowing that they were false and peddling them anyway. And it would also possibly alienate their core viewership, which so much hungered for Trump to win re-election. David, you've covered Rupert Murdoch for a long time, and
13: it's actually been a long time since Murdoch was in a situation like this over a scandal at one of his news outlets. What
26: happened the last time? Well, you've got to think back a decade, 2011, 2012. Murdoch's London tabloid, the Sunday News of the World, which had been the source of a lot of his fortunes and propelled his expansion globally, had become embroiled in this enormous hacking scandal of hundreds of British uh, royals, celebrities, but also veterans and victims, including a 13-year-old uh, murdered girl. And he mumbled in his testimony. He professed to not be able to remember hardly anything he was being asked about, about the operations of his companies, about his interactions with top executives there, about his interactions with prominent British politicians. And he managed to sort of shuffle his way out of it, even as he said, listen, I'm firmly in charge. I'm the man to fix what's wrong. A decade later, he can probably claim he's a little bit more removed than ever. But he's had these interactions with top stars. He's had these interactions more specifically with former President Trump at the time. And those are going to be things he's going to have to face. Uh, in front of Dominion's lawyers. That's NPR's David Folkenflik. David, thanks. You bet. Since the Club Q shooting in Colorado,
12: high-profile drag performers and LGBTQ bars are hiring extra security staff for protection. More than 200 anti-LGBTQ bills were introduced this year, and the community now faces attacks in legislatures in several states. NPR's Lily Quiros takes us to Texas, where some bills could affect who is able to attend
27: drag events.
19: Is
28: Today
27: is the showdown! I'm at the Roundup Saloon for a late night show, where host and drag queen Marissa Cage welcomes revelers sporting cowboy hats and boots. But what I'm here to see is what's on stage, the glitz and glam of tonight's drag performers.
20: Please make some noise for Olivia Reapine and the Couture.
27: Only four drag performers remain in the competition, and they're battling it out for a cash prize and to become part of the Roundup's royal court. But the shooting at Club Q in Colorado late last month, which killed five and injured 17, has had an effect. Since the shooting, the Roundup has added two security personnel for Friday and Saturday nights. Still, all four contestants and plenty of patrons showed up, including drag queen Olivia Ray obscene.
29: It's scary. You know, my dad, he was like, hey, are you sure you want to continue in this competition? my my dad's my biggest supporter.
27: Glad reports that there have been at least 140 drag events targeted with, quote, false and vile rhetoric, armed intimidation, and or outright violence this year. Texas had the most. A couple doors down from the Roundup saloon is Mr. Mister. Earlier this year during Pride Month, this gay bar had seen protesters after it hosted an all-ages drag brunch. Now, Texas Representative Jerry Patterson has authored a bill that would require businesses that host drag events to operate as, quote, sexually oriented businesses. We reached out for a comment, but he was not available before this piece aired. A different representative, Brian Slayton, confirmed with NPR that he is committed to file his own legislation to ban minors from attending a drag performance. In Texas, that's anyone under 18. Here's what he told Fox News.
17: We don't want people to sexualize them. We don't want people to sexually assault them.
27: Glad's president and CEO, Sarah Kate Ellis, says false claims like these are dangerous.
2: What we're seeing is that there are these created narratives around the drag queens and these performances, and then they're going online onto social media and going unchecked there and just spreading. And creating this environment of extremism,
27: Olivia has more to lose from all this.
29: It, frankly, it pisses me off. I, I have five siblings under the age of eighteen, and the fact that my family cannot come and see me perform it, it hurts because that, excuse me, um, they're very supportive, um, and they come to a lot of my shows. So it's uh,
30: it's hard.
27: As the night's wrapping up, it's clear that Olivia Ray have seen and Rosalia oh, Doll are, are, are the top two performers.
22: And they will be the second two Unholy by Sam Smith and Kim Hatchos.
27: Each is showing off, doing splits and high kicks in their fiercest looks. And in the end, it's Olivia who prevails. In the finale this week, only one will be crowned to become the newest drag performer of the roundup. And host Marissa Cage says
30: they'll keep showing up. They're not gonna bring us down. We are such a strong community, and we've seen it throughout the years and throughout history, like, We're going to live our life.
27: Lily Quiros, NPR News, Dallas, Texas. Coming up later today
12: on All Things Considered, a former member of the intelligence community talks about how they deal with long-term mental health issues caused by trauma and exposure to death and violence. To listen, stream NPR on your smartphone or computer or just listen to us on the radio this is npr news
0: i'm rupa shanoy in boston in the wake of Brittany griner's release from russia coming up on morning edition some people ask whether wb wb NA players should be paid more so they don't go abroad to supplement their income. And in our next hour, NASA's Orion spacecraft is back on Earth after a successful mission around the moon. Cloudy skies should clear by later this morning while temperatures rise to the low 30s. Clear tonight in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, sunny in the upper 30s. Right now, it's 25 degrees in Boston at 743.
2: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new Martin acoustic guitars. Because every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com.
0: Now in business news, Wynn Resorts is planning to build two new hotels across the street from its Encore Boston Harbor Casino in Everett. The expansion also includes a theater as well as several restaurants and clubs. The Boston Globe reports the 13-acre project will be built on a site that right now is mostly parking lots. Natick-based tech company Cognex is acquiring a German lighting company. Cognex says the technology from the German company named SAC will help it expand its software to the makers of electric vehicle batteries. The terms of the deal have not been made public. It's 744.
24: Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm A. Martinez. While WNBA star Brittany Griner
13: enjoys her return to the U.S., there is a conversation worth having about why Griner was in Russia in the first place. All right, now, long story short, female basketball players have an opportunity to get paid substantially more overseas than they do here in the U.S. But in the nearly 300 days since Griner's detention, how has the conversation around women's pay equity in sports advanced? Here's NPR's Andrew Limbaugh.
31: According to the experts I talked to, there have been more conversations about pay and the WNBA since Greiner's imprisonment. In fact, just recently, Kelsey Plum from the Las Vegas Aces went viral for comments she made on the residency podcast talking about it.
28: We are not asking you to get paid what the men get paid. We're asking you to get paid the same percentage of revenue shared.
31: Okay. You know what got I'm saying? It, got it,
30: So that's a huge misconception. That's a huge misconception. Yeah. Got it, okay. for sure. yeah, But have like,
31: these conversations oh, directly translated on. to dollars and cents for female athletes? I
30: wish that was the
31: outcome. That's Alicia Jessup, associate professor of sport administration at Pepperdine University and the founder of Ruling Sports, a website that covers the intersection between business and sports.
30: But if my Twitter account shows anything, a lot of people are really digging their hills in on these women being paid enough in the WNBA and that what else could they ask for?
31: To back up a bit, even before getting caught in the middle of a massive story with huge geopolitical consequences, Brittany Griner was a star with some name recognition. She was the first openly gay athlete to be signed to an endorsement deal by Nike and an Olympic gold medalist. And even she felt the need to play in Russia.
30: Wherein a person like Brittany Griner was earning over a million dollars per season compared to her WNBA salary, which is just over $200,000 a season.
31: And it's not just Griner. For decades, WNBA players have found massive financial opportunities in Russia that they couldn't find here. NPR has reached out to the head of the WNBA Players Association, but we haven't heard back yet. But Jessup says that the players did have some factors going for them when they last negotiated their collective bargaining agreement. And since then, WNBA viewership has gone up with 2022 being its most watched regular season in 14 years. But with the war in Ukraine still ongoing, many players have lost that option of going to Russia to play.
30: So these athletes have lost their greatest source of income. And that should be damning to the WNBA, It should be damning to the owners of these teams. It should be damning to every corporation in America who says it's investing in women and believes in women and wants to empower women.
3: We have to make the choice that we're going to do better. How dare us let other countries treat our own citizens in this sport realm better than we do?
31: Ketra Armstrong is a professor of sport management at the University of Michigan. She says it'll take a deeper cultural shift for there to be any significant move in on the question of paying female athletes in the WNBA.
3: So we need strategic marketing. We need uh, strategic business plans, comprehensive business plans that will grow the market, that will grow their fan base, that will engage them with corporate partners that would allow them to get extra monies. All of these things is what the NBA has been doing for years and we need to have the same type of intentionality for the WNBA.
31: And Armstrong says that we don't points to some still deeply held beliefs as to where we think women belong. Andrew Limbaugh, NPR News.
13: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, we hear from one of the women who inspired the new Netflix film about elite swimmers who fled Syria during the Civil War. And in our next hour, Los Angeles has sworn in its first black female mayor. It's 7.50.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere, at uma.com/npr. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available
28: at aecf.org. What do American Christians believe about their religion? A new survey finds that those beliefs are as diverse as the country they live in, including a sizable number of regular churchgoers who believe Jesus was a great teacher but not divine. So we'll go beyond the narrow slice of political evangelicalism that often grabs media attention and talk about the broad spectrum of belief in American Christianity. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: Low 30s today, under gradually clearing skies, clear tonight in the 20s, clear skies tomorrow in the upper 30s, about the same on Wednesday. Right now it's 25 degrees here in Boston. This Wednesday at WBUR City Space, join On Point host Meghna Chakrabarty for a conversation on anti-aging research with Harvard genetics professor David Sinclair. Attend in person or virtually. Get your tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 751.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. I'm Amy e. Martinez.
32: And I'm Steve Inskeep. The Netflix movie The Swimmers tells the story of two sisters. They tease each other, as sisters do, and push each other's buttons. In an early scene, they're together in a hallway, knocking on a door, when Sara tells Yusra what awaits them behind it.
4: By the way, it's not the dinner. It's your surprise birthday party. I hate you. Just don't ruin it for them.
32: The girls speak in English, though the birthday song, The Ruined Surprise, is sung in Arabic because the family lives in Syria. It's 2011 when, for at least some people, Syria was a nice place to live. The sisters are talented swimmers whose father wants to send them to the Olympics until Syria's civil war begins and no place is safe from falling bombs, not even the pool where they compete. The Swimmers is based on the real-life story of Syrian sisters who fled their country. Sara and Yusra Mardini became refugees, took a boat to Europe, and one of them, Yusra, did reach the Olympics afterward. In the movie, the sisters are played by two actors who are themselves sisters, Manal and Nathalie Aissa. Nathalie, of course, knows something about being a sister.
4: We've always been close. We have like seven year age gap between each other, but it's like we never
32: feel it. She also knows about fleeing a war. She grew up in Lebanon, whose many wars include one in 2006. NPR News reported on the start of the fighting. This
6: is an area where Hezbollah and the Israelis have clashed quite often in the past. And at the moment,
28: they're being shelled quite heavily by the Israelis. There's been Continuous shelling all afternoon.
4: When I was eight years old, like the war started in Lebanon, so we came to France with my family.
32: Do you have memories of what drove your family away at that time? What was happening? Of course.
4: It's just like we could die any second. And I remember I was eight years old and I was not. Like, I, I knew that I could die any minute. It's not what a child should think about. And I was really scared for my parents to die. I was never scared myself would die. I was always scared for the people around me. And you were never expecting when a bomb will come and just kill you.
32: She could relate to the story of the Syrian swimmers, though Aisa says the Syrian's escape was far more harrowing than her own. At one point in the film, the sisters are on a small crowded boat. We're
4: in this together. We need to work together.
32: And as the boat takes on water, they try to pair up swimmers with non-swimmers, speaking in both English and Arabic.
33: Who oh, here knows how to swim? مين بيعرف يسبح؟ مين
13: بيعرف يسبح knows how to swim?
33: Okay, the people with their
4: hands up, choose someone with their hands down. It's your duty to help them. It's your
7: responsibility.
32: How much thought did you and the filmmakers give to which language to speak when?
4: Yeah, this actually was a huge debate because... We really wanted to speak Arabic all the time during the Syria times and between the sisters we really wanted to speak all the time Arabic because this is what happens but we really wanted to at least add the Arabic during the most like sensitive scenes for example the fight scenes where they cry where they fight and everything where they really are in their deepest emotion to add the Arabic thing because this is how it feels like. And the english part of course it it seems logic when they meet refugees when they are in berlin and everything if it was up to me we would have spoken arabic during all the syria scenes and all the scenes between two sisters but
32: um, why would you have wanted that
4: because this is the reality i mean when i'm with my sister because i also came from lebanon and i'm in france and when i'm with my family i don't speak english i speak arabic and this is how it's still happening after 15 years and so I, f- but the thing is that Yusra and Sarah also uh, speak English a lot together. And they also told us that sometimes when they wanted to speak about something that their parents, like they didn't want their parents to, to hear, <laughs> they used to, yeah, they used to uh, use English. But yeah, sometimes we wanted to speak more Arabic because it's such a beautiful language. And I think it should be heard more, mm. especially in a big platform, don't you think so?
32: It is a beautiful language. Since it happened in real life, it's not giving away the ending to say that Yusra swam in the 2016 Olympics. The organizers allowed the creation of a refugee team for athletes separated from their nations. Natalie Aisa portrays Yusra on screen in that moment, both triumphant and sad. Can I ask one more silly question? Of course. Are you a good swimmer?
4: Uh, now, yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs>
32: what did you have to do to be? I, I didn't know how to swim before. I, I at really, all? I, at did... all. Go on. So you became an Olympic swimmer, at least on the screen. What did you have to do? Yeah,
4: and six weeks, <laughs> I went from non-swimmer to Olympic swimmer.
7: <laughs>
32: wow.
4: I was really scared of water. And this is what made me also feel like, oh, my God, I'm not good enough to be able to do this role. So my love for Yustra, my love for the script made me, like, have this courage to face my fear.
32: It was persuasive. What is it that you want the outside world to know about your region uh, that they didn't know, that you want to represent to them?
4: That we. We are normal. You know, when I arrive to France, a lot of people ask me weird questions about the Middle East. Like, are you beaten by your dad? Uh, are you allowed to go dance? Are you allowed to go out? Is everybody veiled? Like, why are, you, why are you not veiled? Like, a lot of questions that I find weird, but also a lack of representation, I think. So I want them to know that Arabic people just live like european guy like they go to dance they have fun they are not like under the control of uh, a father or anything and they just are normal and they don't always live in fear and there's not always like problems in the country there are just people having dreams like you guys and that we're just normal Mm. just normal
32: Those words from Natalie Aisa bring to mind the way the swimmers are at the start of the Netflix film, before their unimaginable experiences, that moment when they're just two sisters in a family, walking together, teasing each other, thinking of the future. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
12: I'm Ian Martinez.
32: And I'm Rob Schmitz.
0: Temperatures won't rise past the mid-30s today. Meanwhile, skies will gradually clear. 20s tonight, then sunny, and upper 30s tomorrow. Wednesday will be a repeat of that, sunny and upper 30s. Right now it's 25 degrees, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock.
24: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy, knightfoundation.org.
0: The Justice Department says it finally has in custody the bomber who brought down Pan Am Flight 103 in 1988, killing 270 people. It's Monday, December 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shunoy. Coming up, two former members of Twitter's Trust and Safety Council speak out about the result of Elon Musk's leadership
33: anti-Semitic posts went up by 61 percent against gay men the corresponding number is 58 percent i find that highly unacceptable
0: and officials in portland oregon respond to business owners concerns about crime in part by targeting homeless encampments also a local annual holiday contest challenges architects to design a more climate ready boston using gingerbread We have everything from,
25: like, silly, silly creative ones, such as the duck boat over there with city landmarks kind of toppling off it.
0: Clearing skies today in the 30s. It's 8.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, on Corva Coleman, the Libyan man suspected of making the bomb that took down an American passenger plane over Lockerbie, Scotland, in 1988, is now in U.S. custody. NPR's Ryan Lucas has more on an arrest that was 34 years in the making.
14: The Justice Department says Abu Aguila Mohammed Massoud Kira Al-Marimi made the bomb that detonated on Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland in 1988. 270 people were killed, including 190 Americans. Two Libyan operatives were initially charged and tried in a special court. One was convicted, the other acquitted. Years later, federal investigators had a breakthrough after Massoud allegedly confessed to the Lockerbie bombing in an interview with Libyan authorities. That led the Justice Department to charge Massoud in 2020. On Sunday, the Libyans handed Massoud over to an FBI team, which flew him back to the U.S. to face trial in federal court in Washington, D.C. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington.
3: Opening statements get underway today in the second trial of Oath Keeper's members accused of the rarely used charge of seditious conspiracy. They're charged with plotting to use force to block the transfer of power to President Biden. Four members of the group are on trial, charged with helping Oath Keeper's founder, Stuart Rhodes, to carry out the plot. He and another member were convicted about two weeks ago of the same charge. Twitter is relaunching a program to sell verified check marks on its platform. NPR's Bobby Allen says the first attempt by the social media platform's new owner, Elon Musk, led to a flood of impersonators and scammers.
26: This time, Twitter says a few things will be different. First, before someone will receive a check mark, there will actually be a verification process, unlike last time. And there are new colors gray checks for governments, gold checks for companies, and blue for individuals. But with less than half of its staff remaining, experts are concerned the company will not have the resources to properly authenticate accounts. Another worry is that trolls, bullies, and spreaders of misinformation will now have a larger megaphone in exchange for being paid subscribers. Twitter, which does not have a communications department, did not respond to a request for comment. Bobby Allen, NPR News.
3: Los Angeles has a new mayor. Former U.S. Congresswoman Democrat Karen Bass has taken the oath of office. It was administered yesterday by Vice President Kamala Harris. In her speech, Bass says there are many Los Angeles priorities that all deserve focused, immediate attention.
19: A pandemic, a rapidly changing economy, a rapidly changing climate, the cost of living, and in Los Angeles, 40,000 people sleeping on the street every day.
3: Bass says that today she plans to declare a state of emergency to deal with homelessness in Los Angeles. A powerful winter storm is striking the central U.S. The National Weather Service has posted blizzard warnings from northern Colorado to parts of Montana. You're listening to NPR News.
0: From WPR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. The new Green Line extension is now running. The start of service this morning came with big crowds and parties with live bands at some stations. Just Topper was among the early riders after waiting a long time for the line to open.
9: Since I moved here, uh, it's been a, a dozen years, um, and I, I know people have been waiting a generation longer than that.
0: Now that the five-station expansion is running, WBWAR's Sharon Brody reports there are efforts to expand the line even further.
11: Medford Mayor Brianna Lungo-Kern says the extension of rail service to the Medford-Tufts station will attract new businesses and give workers more reliable transportation. And she's calling for more green line options in Medford. To extend it
33: to Route 16 and to do an environmental study, which is the first next step, because we feel that this is going to have nothing but a positive impact on our community.
11: Somerville Mayor Katjana Ballantyne says the additional public transportation is a game changer
27: our social progress, our agenda on climate action, and the overall quality of life.
11: Valentine says thanks to the Green Line extension, nearly all of Somerville is within a 12-minute walk of a T-station. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sharon Brody.
0: Congressman Seth Moulton met with Ukrainian officials over the weekend during a secret trip to Kiev. Moulton tells the Boston Globe officials there expressed concerns the U.S. may cut back on military aid to the country. Moulton says he's committed to making sure Ukraine gets the support it needs. Russia's invasion of the country is entering its 10th month. A leader of the Wampanoag tribe is being charged with stealing artifacts from the Plymouth Pawtuxet Museum. Police say tribal chairman Brian Whedon stole nearly $10,000 worth of items last month. Prosecutors haven't said exactly what Whedon is being charged with. The artifacts were anonymously returned to the museum earlier this month. The academic dean of Montserrat College of Art in Beverly will take over as leader of the school, at least temporarily. Brian Pellanen will take that role next month. That's when current president Kurt Steinberg will step down. Pelanin will stay in the role until a national search for a new president is conducted. It's 8.06.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth.
0: A heads up for drivers in Brookline, Route 9 eastbound is closed right now at Lee Street because of a crash near the Brookline Reservoir. Police are asking you to stay clear of that area if you can. In sports, the Bruins topped the Golden Knights 3-1 to last night in Las Vegas. The Bees return home tomorrow to play the New York Islanders. The Patriots are in prime time tonight. They'll visit the Arizona Cardinals. The Celtics' road trip continues tonight as they visit the L.A. Clippers. Cloudy this morning with clearing by the afternoon. The high will be in the low to mid-30s. Clear overnight with temperatures in the 20s. Sunny tomorrow, mid-30s. It's 25 degrees in Boston at 8.07.
2: WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And i Martinez.
13: For the first time in its 241-year history, Los Angeles' mayor is a black woman. Karen Bass was sworn in on Sunday by Vice President Kamala Harris.
12: Her first order of business, the city's homelessness crisis.
19: I will start my first day as mayor at the city's emergency operations centers, where my first act as mayor will be to declare a state of emergency on homelessness.
12: She'll also deal with a scandal-ridden city council as she tries to push her agenda through.
13: Benjamin Oreskes is a Metro reporter with the LA Times. Uh, Benjamin, so Mayor Bass wants to start with a state of emergency on homelessness.
9: Who's on board and what will that do? Thanks for having me. The question of who's on board, she has, it's sort of answered by who was at her inauguration. Almost every member of the city council, save one, and we're going to talk about him in a minute, was there. And was excited to be there and excited to be working with her on uh, this issue. Uh, a state of emergency has a sort of political and practical dimension. The, the practical one is that it, it gives her a lot more power, flexibility, uh, and freedom to deploy resources, staff, and money in various different directions to address this crisis that voters you know, indicated in any number of ways was the most important in the city. The, the political part of this is that it, again, tells people this is the most important thing on my plate and it's all i'm going to be thinking about so conveying an urgency to angelinos who are very angry about the state of their streets
13: and benjamin catch us up on the politics part of los angeles because there's a lot of dysfunction happening around the city council and the last few days have been especially terrible
9: they are the one member of the city council who didn't show up to her inauguration was kevin de Leon. kevin was caught on a tape that was recorded last year and he's on it with two members of the city council and a, a labor leader. And they're, they're making crude, racist remarks. It's in the context of redistricting. They're talking about that process. But, but he says, and they all say some not so nice things about their colleagues, some racist comments about one of their colleague's sons. And two of the members sort of hid. One resigned, one just sort of stayed out of the way. He's now termed out. But, but Kevin has dug his heels in. Uh, he hasn't, though, showed up for city council meetings. He did, though, for the first time in months on Friday. What also then occurred, is that he went to a holiday party and protesters who have been dogging him for much longer since this tape came out, got in his face and and he was fed up and and, and sort of attacked one of these protesters. It was a brawl of sorts. All of this takes place under the backdrop of a city where we have a member of the city council who was indicted, we have multiple former members who were indicted, and and just a broader sense from Angelinos that the bodies of government in the city are not working for them it's what propelled the candidacy of karen bass's opponent rick caruso uh and and it's also what a lot of the healing that karen bass has talked about needing to do
13: and so how is the new mayor talking about how she'll try to heal some of those divides
9: well she is someone whose biography is about bringing people together She's a community activist starts after the Civil unrest in 1992, starts a nonprofit called Community Coalition. Uh, She then joins the state assembly and then on to Congress. You know, she has been all about meeting with people, uh, listening to their problems, and trying, again, to bring people together. And I think you saw during her inauguration a real sense, a real relief even, from other elected officials about her ascendance and, and, and a desire to work with her to get things done. That's Benjamin
13: Oreskes from the LA Times. Benjamin, thanks. Thank you. Mobile homes have long been an affordable housing option, but big investment firms have been buying up the land they sit on, causing homeowners to worry about whether they'll be able to stay. From member station WBUR in Boston, Simon Rios reports on how corporate ownership is upending the lives of people in one park.
34: Outside John Piazza's trailer, the 84-year-old former harbor captain and amateur historian is sorting through his life's belongings.
12: You want drills? I got a bunch for you to take
5: home. Look at them. Uh, Keep them.
34: There's three or four. Keep them. His son, John Jr., is helping him pack and trying to persuade him to toss more stuff. They argue over a pile of boxes Piazza hopes a cousin will take.
23: Listen, look at it. Joe's auntie, Joe... Yeah,
20: Joe's
7: auntie's been there three different times. If he doesn't take them, he doesn't want
20: them. How do you know?
7: Well, I don't know. If you wanted, you he would have... He was
9: in love with them.
7: He oh, grabbed okay, the yeah. two
20: bikes. Yeah. Piazza
34: has lived more than two decades at Lee's Trailer Park in Revere, a small working-class city just north of Boston. Living in a mobile home was a good choice for him when rent control ended in Boston in the 90s. I said, let me look at it. And I fell in love with it. I said, wow, this is bigger than my apartment. And I bought it. 20000 Mobile home parks are home to 22 million people across the country but they've become a target for corporate investors, accounting for roughly a quarter of park sales according to the firm Real Capital Analytics. Residents worry this means increased rents and the possibility of displacement because even those who own their mobile homes don't usually own the land they sit on. Piazza was planning to spend the rest of his days at Lee's Trailer Park, But a year and a half ago, it was sold to an entity managed by a Boston investment firm, Helg Capital. They soon started evicting people to make way for a new housing development. Piazza recalls standing outside with his neighbors as one of them watched his house being destroyed.
9: The person that runs the machine put the top jaw on top and the bottom jaw above the metal frame and squish and that whole wall came off.
34: The park's new owners wouldn't agree to an interview, but in a statement, they said they have treated every resident fairly. They've also been compensating residents for the value of homes that can't easily be moved. The park's former owner, William Setapan, says he feels for some of the people whose trailers were crushed, but... whoa, well, they're paying the people, though, and he agrees to take it. They ain't doing nothing wrong. They ain't forcing no one to take it. Cedepin also says the new housing development planned would be a big improvement over the park, which he says has long been dogged by drugs and crime.
30: The city should be glad that they got rid of the the park because it was nothing but a problem even though I was the owner.
34: Mobile park advocates say parks like Lee's get into bad shape because park owners let it happen. And cities don't do
6: enough to stop it. This looks like there was certainly a home here and maybe over here where the dumpster is. Dumpsters not covered, minor things, but still violations. Drainage is a problem. So we have wetlands issues here too. You can see here, it looks like a river or a brook.
34: Boston University public health instructor Ethan Mascoop sits on the state manufactured homes commission. He surveyed Lee's trailer park and spotted one health violation after another, even though people still live there.
6: It looks like a remains of a war. There's stuff strewn about, there's people's, some belongings. It's very, very sad.
34: Mascoop says he wants to know where the city is with so many apparent health violations. The Revere mayor's office did not respond to multiple requests for interviews. But in the meantime, the park's population is slowly dwindling. Roughly 100 people have already left Lee's and just 17 mobile homes remain. Those are gradually being removed as well. Back at John Piazza's mobile home, surrounded by decades worth of belongings his son john jr says it's sad to see his dad forced to leave this way
29: i mean he's, his independence is gone he can walk out here getting his car, go shopping and stuff like that now exactly
34: you know he's
29: not
12: gonna
34: be able to do that in, in the city that's because piazza is headed to an assisted living home in boston where he won't have his car any longer he doesn't want to leave but he counts his blessings He says some of the people who lived at Lee's trailer park have no place to go. For NPR News, I'm Simone Rios in Boston.
12: NASA's Orion spacecraft is back on Earth after a 25 day mission around the moon. It's a critical test for the agency's newest Artemis lunar program, which plans to send astronauts on a similar trip. From member station WMFE,
29: Brendan Byrne reports. When the Orion capsule hit Earth's atmosphere, it was traveling around 25,000 miles per hour. By the time it splashed down in the Pacific Ocean, under a canopy of parachutes, the gumdrop-shaped capsule slowed to just 20 miles per hour. From Tranquility Base to taurus Littrow to the tranquil waters of the
17: Pacific, the latest chapter of NASA's
29: journey to the moon comes to a close. It was the end of Orion's journey that took it nearly 270,000 miles from Earth. The $4 billion mission, dubbed Artemis 1, comes after years of development and delays for NASA's next chapter in human lunar exploration. This mission carried no crew, but tested important systems of the spacecraft. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson.
31: This has been an
29: extraordinarily successful mission. One of the most critical pieces of hardware on Orion is its heat shield. NASA tested a brand new one and tried a different kind of re-entry called a skip. Orion dipped down into the atmosphere, then steered its way out like swimming through the boundary of Earth and space to pinpoint its landing spot. Orion's trip pushed the spacecraft to its limit, says NASA's Howard Hugh. We've been able to accomplish over 122 of our flight test objectives that we had planned. And we added a bonus of 20 real-time flight test objectives as well. What NASA learns from this mission will help the next one, a similar flight but with astronauts, and a third trip to land humans on the moon. But space policy analyst Laura Forsick says there's much still to be done. NASA needs new spacesuits and a lunar lander.
2: Overall, this is a really good
30: first step, but it's only the first step. It's the very beginning.
29: Exactly 50 years before Orion's splashdown, Apollo 17's Gene Cernan spoke humanity's last words on the moon. We leave as we came, and God willing, we shall return with peace and hope for all mankind. With Artemis 1, NASA is a step closer to fulfilling that promise. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando.
12: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Chinoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, the Federal Reserve and European Central Bank are both planning interest rate hikes this week. And a local holiday contest challenges architects to use gingerbread to depict a version of Boston that's ready for the impacts of climate change. It's 819.
14: Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org
2: cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, LaurenHolleran.com. And Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, understanding that now more than ever, we need the ocean and the ocean needs us. Start the new year by joining a team dedicated to advancing ocean science and technology for the global good. Explore exciting career opportunities opportunities in many fields at WHO.edu
22: I'm Deepa Fernandez. For grandparents raising their grandchildren, it takes creativity and love to persevere to feed their families.
7: That big four-letter word, love, is what keeps pushing me.
22: Yeah,
23: the same thing. It's, it's love, it's that commitment.
22: Two grandparents share their challenges with food insecurity. Next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Cloudy
0: skies gradually clear today while temperatures rise only to a high near 34. Tonight it stays mostly clear and falls to a low around 24. Tomorrow sunny with a high near 37. Right now it's 25 degrees in Boston at 821.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox for lovers of British TV. Offering a varied selection of British mysteries, dramas, comedies, and other programming. Gift subscriptions available at BritBox.com slash gifting. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from UMA. A cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. At uma.com/npr.
12: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Rob Schmitz in Washington, D.C. The prisoner swap between Russian arms dealer Victor Boot for American basketball player Brittany Griner came as a disappointment to many on the African continent. The so-called Merchant of Death helped fuel several bloody conflicts by selling arms and munitions to oppressive regimes and rebel forces there. Joining me now is Masa Washington, a Liberian journalist who covered the Liberian Civil War in the 1990s She was threatened for criticizing the government and eventually sought asylum in the United States. Masa, welcome.
7: Good morning. Thank you.
12: Masa, Victor Boot sold weapons to regimes throughout the world and throughout Africa. What was his role in your home country of Liberia during its civil wars in the 90s and early 2000s?
7: Well, in Liberia, during the early um, years of our civil war, he was known for being uh, the major arms dealer to the NPFL rebels of Mr. Charles Taylor, who is now incarcerated in the British prison.
12: And of course, Charles Taylor was the Liberian warlord who then became during president exactly, and was yeah. became a, a notorious war criminal. So
7: Mr. Bod was his was his business partner and also arms supplier and arms dealer that fueled the Liberian civil war in Liberia. And uh, as as a result of that war, Liberia has an estimated 250,000 to 300,000 people that died in the Liberian Civil War. and more than 20,000 child soldiers were forcibly conscripted and turned into killing machines. Most of them were killed and the, the vast majority of them are now. what um, street, street children well, they are men and women now but what we call zokos, so they are now the outcasts of society. So Mr. Victor Bout's role in the civil war in Liberia has left devastating uh, impact for the people of Liberia, including myself. So we are worried and we are concerned now that he's been released. And our concern is that Liberia is a porous country in terms of governance. There's been no accountability for for war crimes that took place in Liberia. And m- most of the warlords and rebel generals who fought the war are in Liberia. They are in position of trust. They've rebranded themselves. They are in position of trust. Some of them are in the legislature and the Senate. Some of them are in mainstream government. Some of them are now businessmen. They are millionaires. So we are worried because former colleagues and partners of Mr. Bout are in Liberia. They run in Liberia. You know, they have political power, they have the economic strength. So we are worried what this potents for Liberia. Is he going to come back to Liberia? Is Mr. Victor Balkan rekindle his relationships with his former or, or war partners who are now the people who are running Liberia? This is very worrisome for us for uh, we worry what it potents for the security, safety and stability of Liberia that is still struggling with the after effect of the civil war.
12: Masa, was Boots' role in these conflicts that you're talking about in the past well-known at the time that they were happening?
7: No, at the time, the people of Liberia really didn't know. Um, Don't forget the war was going on. The war was vicious. We had, by by the first year of the war, we had more than one million people who have fled externally into refugee camps in the sub-region. We have... Another more one million people internally displaced. So the Liberians um, didn't know what role this guy was playing, but as the West African peacekeeping force came to Liberia, as the United Nations came, and they broke out the peace, and people began to hear this guy's name. And I work, I also served on the truth commission. Besides being a journalist, I served on the truth commission, and we investigated. What happened in, in Liberia, and his name came up. As a matter of fact, Mr. Victor Bout is listed in the report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for further investigation in his role that he's played. He's named in our report.
12: That's Liberian journalist Masa Washington. Masa, thank you very much.
7: You're welcome.
13: The prisoner exchange of Victor Bout for Brittany Greiner is an encouraging sign for families of other Americans imprisoned in Russia. Mark Fogel has been detained since August of last year. His family is hoping Griner's release means that he's one step closer to returning home. Julia Zenkvich from Member Station WESA reports.
10: For much of his career, Fogel taught the children of ambassadors and diplomats at international schools across the globe. In August 2021, he was headed to Russia to start his 10th and final year of teaching at the Anglo-American School of Moscow, but he never made it to the school. Instead, he was arrested in a Moscow airport for carrying a small amount of prescribed medical marijuana he used to treat debilitating chronic back pain. His case bears a striking similarity with Griner's. Fogel was charged with drug smuggling and possession and was given a 14-year sentence. This fall, the 61-year-old was moved to IK2, a hard-labor penal colony. Lisa Highland, Fogel's sister, says she's happy Griner is home. She's trying to be optimistic about what that could mean for her brother's safe return.
3: Certainly, I'm very glad that she's come home. She didn't deserve the sentence that she got either. It's somewhat hopeful in that, it, you know, obviously there are still negotiations going on. But of course, we want
19: Mark to be the one on that plane.
10: Hyland and her family are working with members of Congress to have Vogel declared wrongfully detained. The designation would allow the U.S. government to put more resources towards securing his release. But Highland is disappointed that her brother's case seems to have drawn less attention than those of other detained Americans. When President Joe Biden announced Greiner's release, he mentioned Paul Whelan, a former U.S. Marine detained on espionage charges, but not Fogel.
3: One thing that's been discouraging is we haven't heard Mark's name, you know, at the press conferences. And I'd like to hear President Biden mention Mark's name, too.
10: Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey, Democratic Congressman Connor Lamb, and Republican Congressman Guy Reschenthaler have all urged the Biden administration to prioritize Fogel's return. On Thursday, a spokesperson for the State Department reaffirmed the department's commitment to helping people detained overseas, but declined to comment on Fogel's case specifically. Hyland said she is not aware of any prisoner swap plan for Fogel. For NPR News, I'm Julia Zankovic in Pittsburgh.
13: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Today at WBUR.org, check out our 22 for 22. It's a look at 22 of some of our favorite stories this year. It includes everything from the moms letting out primal screams at Charlestown High School to how the city of Chelsea is tackling urban heat islands one block at a time. Check it out by visiting WBUR.org. It's 829.
2: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Huntington Theatre. Give art, culture, and community. Gift the Huntington. Gift certificates, seat plaques, flexible packages, and more. HuntingtonTheatre.org gifts. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at ROADscholar.org learning.
6: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A former Libyan intelligence officer suspected of making the bomb that brought down Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, is expected to appear in court in Washington. He was taken into U.S. custody nearly 34 years after the bombing. It killed 270 people, mostly Americans. Eleven of those who died were on the ground in Lockerbie. Foreign ministers with the European Union are considering additional sanctions on Iran following Tehran's second execution of an anti-government protester. As Terry Schultz reports from Brussels, these latest penalties are expected to address Iran's public executions as well as its sale of drones to Russia.
1: The EU wants to put more pressure on the Iranian government over its heavy-handed treatment of demonstrators and to offer a strong response to Iran assisting Russia in its war against Ukraine. (laughs) German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock says more members of Iran's Revolutionary Guard will be targeted over the drone sales after its chief was blacklisted last month. Individuals who try to intimidate and punish demonstrators with what Baerbock calls a violently coerced videos will also be targeted. EU foreign policy chief Joseph Burrell says he spoke with the Iranian foreign minister, who continues to deny his government has supplied drones to Moscow. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. This is NPR News. From WBUR
0: in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoi. After years of planning, the teased new green line extension into Medford and Somerville is up and running this morning. The first trains began running before 5 this morning. Ben Vig was at the opening well before dawn.
17: This project's been in development longer than I've been alive. And, you know, I see it whenever I took the train in. And it's really cool to just see it finally in operation. And now now this is done.
29: There's so much more that we can do.
0: Lauren Carter came from Maine to see the first trains leave the station.
29: There's nothing to do at home. I'm going to come and I'm going to see this really cool thing. And I'm like really into like transit and all of that. And like I'd like to get into advocacy someday. So coming to these events is just really important to me.
0: The $2 billion project added five stations to the Green Line. Today, the Boston City Council will explore the idea of expanding voting rights to immigrants who aren't U.S. citizens. The council says there are about 40,000 immigrants living here with legal status. Counselors will debate whether those residents should be able to vote in city elections. More than a dozen locations across the country allow non-citizens to vote. The city of Cambridge is hosting a COVID vaccination clinic this week with an incentive. Anyone who lives or works in Cambridge will get a $75 debit card when they get any dose or booster of the vaccine. The clinic will run Thursday from 4 to 8 p.m. at the Cambridge Side Mall. Walk-in availability is limited, so people are encouraged to pre-register. It's 833.
24: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates. Celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakeshamplainchocolates.com.
0: The Bruins beat the Golden Knights 3-1 last night in Las Vegas. Boston has now won 12 of its last 15 games. The Bees return home tomorrow to face the New York Islanders. In women's hockey, the Boston Pride beat the Buffalo Buttes 7-5 yesterday. Boston captain Jillian Dempsey had three goals and three assists in the win. The Patriots are in Arizona tonight to play the Cardinals. The Celtics are in Los Angeles to take on the Clippers. Overcast skies slowly clear this morning, and it'll be cold, rising only to the low 30s today. Tonight, mid and upper 20s and still clear. Sunny tomorrow and in the upper 30s. Right now, it's 25 degrees in Boston at 834.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U And from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los
13: Angeles, California. The Fed and the European Central Bank are considering raising interest rates again as soon as this week in their battle against inflation. Here to talk about what this means to American consumers, we turn to David Wessel. He's the director of the Hutchins Center at the Brookings Institution. David, so let's start off with inflation here. Um, How likely is it that a slow and steady approach wins this race?
23: Well, look, progress against inflation is very slow. We'd get some more data tomorrow, the Consumer Price Index for November, and it'll probably show that some of the supply chain pressures that have been driving up prices are beginning to abate. I mean, like prices of apparel and used cars have been coming down. Gasoline prices have fallen as well. Now, the CPI report for October was encouraging, but then last week we got discouraging news on wholesale prices. Overall, the problem is that prices are still climbing much faster than the Fed's 2% goal. Even if you exclude volatile food and energy prices, which is a way to gauge the underlying pace of inflation, consumer prices rose more than six percent over the past year in short inflation just isn't coming down fast enough to get the fed to relax all right so then what is the fed going to try and do about this well it's going to keep raising interest rates interest rates started the year at zero which is extraordinary the fed has raised them unusually fast by 3.75 percentage points so far and it's signaled that it's going to raise them another half percentage point when their meeting concludes on wednesday from jay powell on down Fed officials have said, we're going to keep raising rates until we're sure we've beaten inflation back into the ground. How much more are they going to go up? Well, that really depends on the economy. But there's now a good chance that the Fed will push short-term interest rates above 5% next year and hold them there for a while until it's convinced that inflation is gone. All right, above 5%. So how are these interest rates hikes then affecting the U.S. economy? Look, the Fed is trying to slow the increase in demand, the amount we buy, the amount businesses spend so that they match the available supply in the economy and relieve the upward pressure on prices. That's the strategy. So far, the pace of economic growth is slowing. The most immediate impact has been on the housing market. Rates on 30-year mortgages have risen from 3% at the beginning of the year to well above 6%. But the job market has been surprisingly strong. Even though the number of vacant jobs has fallen, unemployment remains low, and Fed Chair Jay Powell keeps saying that wages are rising faster than consistent with his 2% inflation goal. So they're going to keep raising interest rates. And the more they raise rates, the greater the chances of a recession next year, which some, but not all, forecasters are now anticipating. Yeah, and rising inflation is not just a United States problem. It's it's a global one, too. So how do things here in the U.S., David, compare to the rest of the world? So inflation is rising everywhere around the world, or it's above target. And that tells you that there's some common forces at work here. The disruption of supply chains due to COVID-19, which, among other things, keeps shutting Chinese factories. And, of course, the surge in food and energy prices that have been triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, inflation is high everywhere, even in Japan, which has been wrestling with deflation for years. But in Europe, inflation is much worse than the United States. Prices there are up more than 10% in the past year alone, and that's largely driven by natural gas prices. And so while the Fed is raising rates to slow an economy that it thinks is growing too fast, the European Central Bank has a much harder job. It's dealing with above-target inflation, raising interest rates to fight inflation, an economy that is growing very slowly, and where the unemployment rate is double the rate in the United States. That's David Wessel of the Brookings Institution. David, thanks. You're welcome.
0: I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Another holiday tradition is underway, the annual gingerbread competition sponsored by the Boston Society for Architecture. Each year, architects, along with folks not trained in design, build edible structures based on a common theme. This year's theme is a little different than years past. It's Climate Ready Boston. WBUR environmental correspondent Barbara Moran gives us a taste of the entries.
8: What happens when you give a lot of sugar to a bunch of architects and tell them to solve climate change? Well, you get everything from a gingerbread brownstone perched on chocolate stilts to a frosted
25: duck boat rescuing
8: Boston landmarks on its roof.
25: We have everything from like silly, silly creative ones such as the duck boat over there with city landmarks kind of toppling off it to more, more realistic ones.
8: Maya Urslev is the gallery manager at the Boston Society for Architecture and running this exhibition.
25: It's been great to see how many different iterations of solar panels. There's been lots of creativity there. Chocolate solar panels, pretzel solar panels, even some made of cereal.
8: One multifamily solar panel gingerbread house has a wall cut away so you can see the
25: holiday scene inside. They have a section view of one of the triple deckers with a happy family. Celebrating Hanukkah on one floor and Christmas on another. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I love that touch.
8: The Boston Society for Architecture, or BSA, has run the contest slash fundraiser for 11 years. This is the first time they've had a climate theme.
25: The BSA has been particularly focused in the last few years really around climate inequity. as the two kind of big systemic problems that architects need to face.
8: Andrea Love is president of the BSA.
25: There are a lot of strategies, particularly around resiliency and climate change that buildings, whether they're gingerbreads or actual buildings, have to kind of deal with those challenges. And so I think that the structures are highlighting the strategies that we have and approaches that we have.
8: The gingerbreads do hit all the climate-ready talking points, like bike-friendly roads, green roofs, and living shorelines. There's even a park with marsh grass made of shredded wheat. Almost everything is edible as all climate intervention should be, even
25: the duck boat. It is a great likeness to the Boston duck boat, and atop it there are all these Boston icons, the John Hancock, Prudential Center, State House, presumably being saved by by the duck boat from the rising tides.
8: But it's hard to secure a building to a boat, and the custom house tower has tumbled into the sugary sea. The pretzel rod supporting it has cracked, crumbling, perhaps, beneath the existential weight of climate change.
25: Oh dear. Yeah, hopefully the, the designers can come and, and reconstruct it a oh, bit. okay. guess pretzel rebar is not going to save us. <laughs> Apparently not. That's not the answer.
8: <laughs> Even if pretzel rebar and chocolate solar panels aren't the answer to climate change, at least not the whole answer,
25: the exhibit highlights a lot of hopeful adaptations. I think climate change is often kind of a scary topic for many people, but I think that this theme and the way that the submitters kind of took it and flipped it on its head has has turned it into more of a hopeful and playful, um, playful interpretations of that. So that's really great. Looking around at all the gummy turtles
8: swimming in jello oceans, you can't help but feel. If there are this many creative people in Boston thinking about climate change, the city is gonna be okay. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran.
0: You can see photos of the gingerbread creations online at WBUR.org. Coming up on Morning Edition, two former members of Twitter's Trust and Safety Council speak out about the impact of Elon Musk's leadership. In your forecast, overcast skies should clear by later this morning while temperatures rise to the low 30s. Clear tonight in the upper 20s, tomorrow sunny in the upper 30s. Right now it's 26 degrees in Boston. Tonight at WBUR's City Space, a conversation with New York Times reporter Jessica Gross. She's investigating what she calls the unsustainability of American motherhood. And that, she says, is because of high expectations put on mothers. Join us in person or virtually tonight at 6.30. Get tickets at WBUR.org events. It's 8.43.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org.
0: Now in business news, Marlboro-based Boston Scientific plans to buy a majority stake in the Chinese medical company Acotech. The $523 million offer would give Boston Scientific a 65 percent ownership in the company. Boston Scientific says it'll help strengthen its presence in China. The deal is expected to close in the first half of next year. W.S. Development wants to cut lab space in favor of adding more housing to its project in the seaport. The Boston Business Journal reports the changes followed feedback from neighborhood residents. In all, it would add about 100 more residential units to the development on Congress Street. The changes still need approval from the city. It's 844.
2: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org. Donate.
13: warmer planet means more wildfires, but fighting those fires can burn
26: just as much money as the fires themselves. When I was a firefighter, I used to think that
29: was the coolest thing.
26: Now all I see is dollar bills flinging out of the bottom of the airplane. I'm Kai Rizdahl, funding the fight against fires next time on Marketplace. Tonight
13: at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
25: It's Morning
12: Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. I'm Amy Martinez.
5: And I'm Rachel Martin. The turmoil continues at Twitter after billionaire Elon Musk acquired the social media company. Three members of Twitter's Trust and Safety Council resigned last week, saying that Musk has undermined the platform's ability to protect its users. In a resignation letter, the former council members say Musk is embracing automated content moderation, that is relying more on algorithms rather than humans to shield users from hate speech and other threats. Two of those former council members are with me now, Erliani, Rahman and Ann Collier. Thanks to you both for being here. Pleasure. Good to be here. May I start with you, Erliani? Can you explain what the Trust and Safety Council
33: does? Yeah, we are a body that was invited um, by Twitter to join and make sure that the conversations that's fostered on the platform is healthy.
5: Why did you not see this council as being an effective way to moderate content on Twitter?
33: I think for me, it was really just watching um, the whole negotiation process take place when Elon Musk was negotiating the purchase. And at a time, I wrote down some commitments to myself that I would resign should he cross the threshold and cross the red lines he did. Um, You know, we've seen data from Anti-Defamation League and the Center for Countering Digital Hate um, the numbers are actually terrifying. So, in terms of average number of tweets per day, and in the first two weeks, anti-Semitic posts went up by sixty-one percent against gay men. The corresponding number is fifty-eight percent. I find that highly unacceptable. And all this data you're quoting is in the time period since Musk took over. Completely correct. And and these are the data that my 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 fellow former peers uh, put forward, and uh, they were part. They are part of the council and still are in there. And the other red line that he crossed was when um, previously banned accounts were reinstated. So, for example, the ones that led up to what happened January 6th here in the U.S. So for me, all these were highly, highly problematic. We were hoping that our, with our resignations, it would prompt a rethinking within Twitter, within the council, but also just generally within Twitter uh, headquarters to reconsider what's happening in terms of content moderation and to make it a safer space for the public.
5: And... In your resignation letter, you said Twitter is moving toward automated content moderation. Why is that risky in your view?
28: Content moderation is very complex and highly nuanced. It's also very contextual. It's very, very hard for algorithms to determine what truly is harmful without any context whatsoever. Human beings are needed to do that. And we know that Twitter staff is massively reduced and Twitter has to be reliant on automated content moderation more. So, and that's, a, that's um, an announcement directly from Twitter itself. I mean, do you believe he
5: intends to disband the trust and safety council and replace it with something else, his own appointees?
28: We don't know, but it's quite possible because if he didn't form us, then perhaps he wants to be the one to form a new group. It's just really hard to know. You know, we're really seeing progress in the industry. There's more regulatory scrutiny. There are more laws. The companies are responding, but Twitter's doing the exact opposite. Something has to be done about
5: that. Anne Collier and Erliani Abdul-Rahman, former members of Twitter's Trust and Safety Council. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin.
12: I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm A. martinez
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm, com- I'm Rupesh Anoy. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report marks 75 years since the invention of something small that's considered the most manufactured item in human history. Odds are you're surrounded by them right now. And coming up at noon today, it's Here and Now, and Robin Young is here in studio to tell us what they're going to be talking
22: about today. Hi, Robin. Hi there to you. And of course, we're going to continue the look you've been having at the news of the day, including the news of the arrest of the suspect in the Lockerbie bombing. Mm-hmm. And, and Rupert, it's so interesting. We have so many colleagues who weren't even born in 1988 when this terrible thing happened. This was- that's true. It's the biggest terrorist event in, on British soil, that's for sure. And it was the flight uh, that was going from London to New York, all about Board Over 200 people were killed, including uh, students that were traveling back here to the New England area. Just a profound, profound moment. And we'll dive deeper into what happened and what this means. We'll get some uh, reaction to that. Also, The cheating in chess. I mean, chess is not your grandparents' chess anymore, apparently, and there's a huge cheating scandal, so we'll take a closer look at that. And at a diabetes documentary, this is about type 1 diabetes, the one in which your pancreas cannot produce insulin, and Mm -hmm. people with this have been waiting and waiting for a cure. Where are we on a cure? Including, you know, from companies like Vertex, which is the big uh, biochemical company, biotechnical company here in the Boston area. We will take a look at that and also speak to people who've been in some of the trials using stem cells. Mm-hmm. What's that like? So a cure for diabetes type 1, where are we at noon? As usual, a great mix. Thank
0: you, Robin. Yeah, thank you. That's here and now today at noon. It's 8.51.
24: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, catering diplomatic receptions, corporate celebrations, milestone events, and public galas in Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine artisanal cuisine, and a focus on logistics. Uncommonfeasts.com. Gather around, let's feast.
25: Russia has mobilized
8: thousands of men to fight in Ukraine, but what happens if you say no?
23: I understood I couldn't shoot a person in any circumstances. A weapon brings nothing but destruction. It's just not for me.
8: I'm Elsa Chang, that story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. That's All Things Considered, starting at four on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
17: The future began 75 years ago this week with the invention
35: of something small that's considered the most manufactured item in human history. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. And by Palo Alto Networks, secure access for hybrid workforces wherever work happens. The future of secure access is ZTNA 2.0. Paloaltonetworks.com. I'm David Brancaccio. It defined the last half
17: of the 20th century and nearly the first quarter of this century so far. The transistor was born in New Jersey on December 16, 1947, 75 years ago, this coming Friday. This week I'm exploring the ecosystems of innovation that brought us the device that changed everything. For proof, let's start in my kitchen. Looky here, something with an on off switch that does not contain transistors. A hand pump espresso maker from the late 70s versus everything else.
1: Getting Marketplace Morning Report from Amazon Music. Continuing the latest episode What China's. The smart
17: speaker has transistors in the billions. They're part of the oven, microwave, fridge, a clock with outside temperature, even the darn toaster and car keys. This transistor infestation and our electronic and information world owes a debt to a team of physicists that faced grinding years of false starts to get the first transistor to work 75 years ago this week.
6: This circuit was actually spoken over, and by switching the device in and out, a distinct gain in speech level could be heard and seen on the scope presentation with no noticeable change in quality.
17: That is physicist Walter Bratton in a vintage industrial film reading his original notes aloud about the demonstration he did with his lab partner, John Bardeen, to show their bosses. It was a contraption using a shard of rock, germanium, an element that's not an electrical conductor like copper or an insulator like rubber, but in between. Ready for the word? It is a semiconductor.
6: It has
32: enabled this uh, global civilization that we are experiencing.
17: Michael Reardon is a physicist and science historian and co-author with Lillian Hoddeson of Crystal Fire, the Invention of the Transistor and the Birth of the Information Age. Within weeks, Bratton and Bardeen's supervisor, William Shockley, rushed to think up an improved, easier-to-manufacture version. All three would win the Nobel Prize.
32: I would put it on the level as fire in terms of its importance to what modern life is like today.
17: There's almost a magic to this thing. No moving parts. If you don't have germanium, you can make it from sand. It shrinks and still works.
32: And I think it's one of the main reasons the United States was first to get to the moon. The Soviet Union did not have a microchip
17: industry in the 1960s. So more than the wheel or the printing press. But what is a transistor? Well, at first, two things. A tiny switch, like the flipper on a pinball game. When the ball comes rolling, that's the signal, the transistor can let it through or flip it away, open or close, a zero or a one, the essence of what would be the digital revolution. A transistor is also a kind of cattle prod, which gooses a signal along so that it's louder. If engineers could figure out how to make these en masse, they could replace the bulky, fragile glass tubes that heated up the insides of earlier electronics. What follows is, digital everything, watching movies on your mobile phone, e-commerce, the collapse of newspapers, social media addiction, but I'm getting ahead of myself. To explore ecosystems of innovation, let's start with what was regarded as a kind of US national laboratory run by a private corporation.
32: The transistor lab did not look like this, but it was physically in this area.
17: It happens through a door to what is now a laboratory clean room in Section 1E of this research campus in New Jersey. So here it is, just feet from the spot where they got the first transistor to work. Here, let me just uh, absorb the vibe. The researchers in there who wiggled their prototype to get it to work in December 1947 were employed by the phone company, back when you said it that way, the phone company, mother of them all, Ma Bell, AT&T. Bell Telephone Laboratories had the resources to produce not just the transistor but the solar cell, the laser, the CCD camera on a chip, the first satellite for phone calls and TV, and the design of the cellular phone system. Just how has something to do with the phone bills your parents and grandparents were paying? Details tomorrow. The future began 75 years ago. Our stories on the ecosystems of innovation that produce the semiconductor revolution are also
35: accumulating online. At marketplace.org. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab offers a modern approach to wealth management with personalized financial planning to meet an investor's specific needs and the flexibility to adapt as those needs change with time. Learn more at schwab.com slash plan and by Avalara. Business owners have worries. Automating sales tax with Avalara helps take the worry out of things like changing tax rates or filing returns. Learn how Avalara can help take the worry out of tax compliance at avalara.com. Now let's do the numbers.
17: Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up in the two to three-tenths of a percent range now. Average retail gasoline down, again, 326 a gallon. That's what we were paying a year ago, October. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is optimistic about the economy next year. She appeared on CBS 60 Minutes last night with predictions on inflation and economic growth. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer report.
18: Yellen says she's hopeful the labor market will stay healthy next year. The Fed is trying to slow the economy just enough to tamp down inflation without causing a recession. The so-called soft landing Fed Chair Jerome Powell talks about. Yellen was asked on 60 Minutes if she thought there would be a recession next year.
11: There's a risk of recession, but um, it certainly isn't, in my view, something that is necessary to bring inflation down.
18: Yellen says there are signs that some of the underlying causes of inflation are improving, pointing out that shipping costs have dropped, delivery times are getting better, and gas prices are down. Yellen says we'll see a, quote, substantial reduction in inflation, but not until the end of next year. I'm Nancy
3: Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace.
17: The Fed's last meeting of the year to assess the economy and tinker with interest rates is this Wednesday. It comes to a conclusion with an announcement. Expect key short-term rate to go up by 0.5. I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. It'll warm up only to the mid-30s today. Meanwhile, skies clear and stay clear tonight as temperatures fall into the 20s. Tomorrow, sunny and upper 30s. Right now, it's 26 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 9 o'clock. The BBC is next.
2: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. You can give the gift of a holiday meal for just $30. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. What do American
28: Christians believe about their religion? A new survey finds that those beliefs are as diverse as the country they live in, including a sizable number of regular churchgoers who believe Jesus was a great teacher, but not divine. So we'll go beyond the narrow slice of political evangelicalism that often grabs media attention and talk about the broad spectrum of belief in American Christianity. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
18: I'm Radio
8: Boston host Tisiana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.